Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Miguel Delaney of The Independent, and Dominic Fifield of The Athletic. The countdown has begun, 23 days until the Champions League final. Arguably the best club team in the world, against one of the most durable. A great coaching matchup in a game featuring two of the best young players in English football. Mason Mount and Phil Foden. It's also a state finance club against a club built in the image of its oligarch owner. Both with Super League plotters. Now, Eggs, there's so many issues to digest, but let's start with the football. This final could have the lock, couldn't it? Yeah, the only quibble I would say there is that, I mean, just in principle, I don't like one country finals because it is the, it is the European showpiece occasion and it should be between, between teams of two different countries. But in saying that, and I was thinking this before the game started last night, and I think events kind of proved it right, I think Chelsea-Man City would be a much better game than Real Madrid-Man City because Chelsea are just several levels above Madrid, as we, as we saw in the match itself. And also, as we saw from the example of Wembley a few weeks ago, they're well capable of beating City. I think it's going to be a really good game, a good matchup. I mean, as you pointed to there, in terms of the kind of the ownerships of the clubs, it's maybe a reflection of where football is at the moment, but also where it could be going because, especially with the progress of this Chelsea team, it feels like next season's title race could very much be Chelsea and City. And that, even if there's a slight sense that maybe Chelsea are a bit ahead of time in terms of reaching this final, there's been great work there. There's huge potential. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very well matched up game. And, and, and I think on that point as well, I mean, and this is, of course, is a, is a consequence of everything we're talking about. And the best coaches will naturally go to the best paying clubs. But Tuchel and Guardiola probably just exemplify the style of football that is dominant in football right now. Even the way David Vaughan, we saw in so many kind of counter-attacks that dominated two second legs. It should be a really high level of football. Yeah, it's on that point, Dom, you've got Pep Guardiola you know, probably going towards a signature season. And Thomas Tuchel, you know, you know Chelsea well. Try and put into context, if you could, what qualities are required for a coach to come into what is a combustible club halfway through a season, take over from a club legend and do what he's done? Well, it requires a bit of context because he's the third coach to have been parachuted in once the season has started and then subsequently taken the team to a European Cup final after Avram Grant and Roberto Di Matteo. I think... His biggest quality has probably been clarity and communication, to be honest. I, I think that the, the, he struck upon a system, yes, and, and a system that was pragmatic. And, you know, whereas the, the Frank Lampard was, was, was probably a bit saddled with the, the idea that he needed to entertain as well as secure success in this second season at the helm, particularly after the spending last summer, when when you're parachuted in with your team in mid-table in the Premier League and facing a particularly daunting knockout round in the Champions League against Atletico Madrid, top of La Liga at the time, I think Tuchel could, could 
justifiably look at that and say, well, okay, we're just going to be solid first of all. We're going to we're going to find a system that works with the personnel we have. We're going to give them very specific roles. We're going to clarify their thinking, or basically just give them a bit of clarity on everything, and bring the best out of them, which is which is exactly what's happened. I mean, it's it's personified really by Angolo Conte, who who's who's been this figure who's who admittedly has suffered from niggling injuries over the last couple of years, but I think has also been a bit confused by successive Chelsea managers in Sari and Lampard asking him to do something that his game doesn't necessarily lend itself to naturally. And Tuchel, in many ways, has almost gone back to basics with, with Angola Conte and asked him to do what he we all know that he's a world class at doing, which is what he was doing for France, which is what he was doing for Leicester, and which what he was doing for Antonio Conte's Chelsea in winning Premier League titles. Yes, as a he he has the the energy to to run in behind as well, but but primarily he's there as <laughs> to provide almost like the the work of two men in midfield. And and my word, don't Chelsea benefit from having him flying at the moment? It's but it's it's purely communication. And it was a criticism of Lampard, weirdly, during latter stages of his tenure that a lot of the players didn't really understand what they were supposed to be doing. And I suppose that was that reflected the the pressure that the manager found himself under. Tuchel, far more experienced, has just come in and, and got them going back to basics. And as a group, they have thrived. Yeah, you were there at the bridge last night, Migs. You know, as we've said off air, you, you know, Chelsea could and probably should have won at least five or six nil. Just want to start by making a case for their defence, if I could. You know, aside for that momentary madness against West Brom. 18 clean sheets, 23 in 23 games. Have they built this from the back? I think actually, I don't think it's quite built from the back. I think it's more about the structure that Tuchel has instilled overall. Because, I mean, I, mean, that, that, I think that's one of the keys of Chelsea. It's, it's, it genuinely is how and you really notice this, watch them live or kind of, you know, in, in those seats at Stamford Bridge, just how quickly they move from kind of numbers and attack to numbers and defence. Does that, that, that speed of the team? And I think it means they're very difficult to get at in general, because also because they win the ball so high up the pitch. And again, I think that's it's something similar with Guardiola's side in this sense. It's why they're to. I mean, Tuchel, I think he's an admitted disciple of of Guardiola's football in that way. So there's obvious connections. But then both have evolved in that way. And I think there were some striking similarities between the two second legs. All we were all the more notable because usually. You would associate, or sorry, the, the idealised football of both these managers would be to be on the front board and dominate the ball around the opposition box. But in both these games, we had very solid-looking defences, a, a lot of really strong blocks that kind of almost, you know, uh, symbolised that, built on good structures, and then counter-attacking at lightning pace. I mean, in both the games, it, it was remarkable, and that's maybe kind of the, the German influence on Guardiola's football, given his time spent at Bayern Munich and how it evolved from there. The, the, the one thing I was thinking about during the, uh, the Chelsea game last night, and it's something, to be fair, that Tuchel did reference afterwards, I can't remember too many games where a team has missed so many chances and hasn't been punished for it. Yeah, we were, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I was waiting for the, for the equaliser in about the 88th minute or something like that. And I suppose then that does bring us to Timo Werner. He scored the goal or a goal last night, Dom. Is that sort of profligacy actually sustainable? Look, they, they can't be in a situation next season where you accept that you're the man leading the line for you, the lone striker, is going to miss a sitter at some point in the game. I mean, that it's happening every single match. And the, the sitter on Wednesday night was actually the the sort of carelessness in wandering offside at that the chance that, he, that was converted. But look, and, and people have had doubts about Werner as a natural finisher really throughout his career. He, there were a lot of chances created in the in the Leipzig team. And he missed quite a lot of them. He also scored quite a lot of them, but there were that many being created. That he sort of got away with it. it. I think it's a reflection of of the scope there is still to develop this Chelsea team. And we we talk about them maybe reaching a Champions League final slightly earlier in their development than, than we anticipated. Well, I think that's that's true, uh, and it's testament really to the solidity at the back and the 
and the brightness and the creative midfielders that they have, and they have so many of those. I mean, that the benches last last night were the, the biggest contrast for me. I mean, Chelsea had so many options up in forward areas, apart from maybe for a natural number nine, if you're if you're discounting a uh, Olivier Giroud because he's apparently passed it, although I actually doubt that a bit. And and Tammy Abraham, who clearly the manager doesn't have a lot of faith in at, at that level. But they had so many options and, and Real Madrid just simply didn't have those options off the bench to make a difference. But if there is scope to develop, yeah, Chelsea, if Chelsea went out and got, I mean, everybody talks about Haaland, but imagine if, if Benzema had been playing for Chelsea last night rather than Real Madrid, they would have won that six or seven nil quite comfortably so comfortably it's they 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 create so many so many opportunities in every match and they it's their ruthlessness that, that lets them down and and when they go into a final against Manchester City a, a team who are going to be a lot more solid defensively than than Real Madrid were than Porto were than Atletico Madrid were i think that'll be where their chance lies i mean if 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 they are as profligate again they will not win the european cup because they won't create as many chances as they did last night. They'll have a few fewer number of chances. They have to take those that they create. We, we can we can reflect back on the on the FA Cup semi-final, but that, that was a tweak to Manchester City team. That wasn't that wasn't the side that's going to be playing them in the Ataturk Stadium. This weekend is intriguing because how do these teams approach that? Is this a dress rehearsal? Do they do they keep their powder dry and City are going to win the Premier League? Whatever happens this this weekend. But the bottom line is Chelsea have to find a way of being more ruthless. And ultimately, I suspect that that means them bringing in a striker from outside to compete with Werner rather than pinning their hopes on Timo Werner long term. Just a point Dom raised there. It's why I actually find these kind of games we're going to see on Saturday fascinating that are important in themselves, but come come just before something much bigger. I mean, as you say, you keep your powder dry. Just too good. I mean, especially with managers who are as tactical as these two are, and I always try to go something different for every game. I mean, it was something that struck me before before this game as well, the Madrid game, where it was in Spain they managed to film some of Zidane's uh, pre-match talk, and it was so basic, like in terms of kind of enjoy the ball, have the ball, and that's up against managers like Guardiola and Tuchel. Who basically become obsessed about players being a yard out of position for some kind of some specific piece of play. <laughs> so, and in that context, do like say in trying to beat City, does Tuchel come up with one game plan for this, but save something bigger for the final? Because of course they do have to get a result on yeah. Saturday as well. And it, it, it creates quite um, a fascinating backdrop to this game as well. Tuchel's having a having a pop from the sidelines at the at the fullbacks and and wide players is becoming a recurring theme of, of of his matches. I mean, he was he was giving Chilwell an absolute earful yesterday, and and that was as you say for just being a couple of yards out of position or not making a little dart early enough to unsettle a, an opponent. I mean, it's they must it's a bit it's not quite as as rabid as it was under Antonio Conte, who would literally be almost punching them on the sidelines to try and get them in a position, but. <laughs> But he's constantly barking instruction all the time, and when you see, makes it absolutely right in terms of the the preparation and the simplicity of some managers. I mean, you know the the, the documentary on Spurs when when Mourinho's this fabled team talks they were they were nonsense. I mean, it makes you think. Well, they must have been an awful lot on the on the cutting room floor from from those because seriously, this man cannot be forged this this career giving delivering team talks like that, but. I think I suspect two calls are a lot more intense and a lot more it's a lot more intricate in terms of what the instructions are per match. We all love the narrative of of the coach as the master planner, you know, the the all-seeing all-powerful one. I think when you look at these two coaches, you probably, you know, that does back it up, but where are the most effective coaches? Is it when they're working on the training ground or is it something bigger? Like a Mourinho basically is a press conference coach. These two, they they basically do their best work when we're not watching, don't they? Well, there was a, there was a really fascinating interview with Seth Fabregas that he did with um, the Wall Street journalist we get with Josh Robinson. And, he, and Fabregas went on at length about how he, when he really noticed that football had changed, even from what, what Guardiola used to be, was when Conte came in at Chelsea. Because it used to be, even in the early 2010s, it was quite free-form up front. But then suddenly he was struck by, as, as Dom alluded to there, 
just how controlling Conte was in almost every aspect of play, how much of it was pre-programmed. And this is something Tuchel spoke about quite early in a pretty good press conference, actually, in, in one of his first few weeks at Chelsea. It was before the Spurs game, actually, where he started talking about a kind of guided coaching and how you put a structure in place and it's about the amount of freedom you give a team. And I, I do think it reflects and why, from, from the kind of the evolution of the game, this is a really interesting final because the rate of evolution in football in the last few years, I think, have been has been unmatched in its history. It's so much more sophisticated than it used to be. I think it's almost it almost comes down to like NFL style planning. And I suppose that's natural because in the last few years we've had such advances in terms of analytics, in terms of sports science, and then just in the kind of the complexity that the coaches are, are willing to read into. And then these two completely exemplify that. Yeah. If we if we're looking at City, Dom, in, in, in their context, look, money is inevitably a factor. The ownership might be a source of concern, but their professional expertise, okay, it was assembled really expensively, it's decisive because it's, 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 we're talking about, well, I'm talking about Pep's signature season as a coach, but it's bigger than that, isn't it? It's the backup, it's the professionalism at all levels. Yeah, and it's in, it, you can't divorce that from the money and the no, investment. No. I mean, it, that, that is, I'm sure every club in the country would love to be to have the resources that 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 city have have poured into their structure whether it be at the training ground in the in the Etihad complex in the into into the team building into the scouting into the long term planning on that front and it's and this has been really this has been in the in the pipeline really since Bigeristan and and Soriano turned up at the club I suppose and that was that predates Pep by how many years 3 years possibly yeah, it would have been three or four years. Yeah, three years. Yeah. Yeah. 2012. 2012, there you go. So four years before before Pet rocked up on the scene. So it's 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 the evolution over time, but evolution funded by by huge, huge wealth. Look, it's it's difficult, particularly in, in the in the context of the last couple of weeks. You you sort of wary of of putting too much praise on on things, whether which have cost so much money and, and which have been state projects, state funded projects, but but if you if you if you you know if you look at what what's on the ground and 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 you look at the the team's progress and you look at the the the, the planning and the and the you know the very fact that they're they're willing to let an Aguero leave, for example, at the end of his contract because they know that they've got plans in place either for a direct replacement or for the the continued development of players coming through or the or the next wave they're thinking 5 years ahead probably already and and that's that is incredible and <laughs> i mean my my colleague Danny Taylor's written a piece today about which reflects back on city's time in in the old third tier and the and the sort of the when they were coming back under Joe Royal and and the club is unrecognisable from the shambles it once was. I mean, it's it's the transformation is is complete. Um, even if they don't win the Champions League, it's it's astonishing the way they've come. Is it, do you not think there's an interesting question there? Is in, and I know this is this is a provocative one, but I think it's like, how much is to any degree the same club, or is it just the kind of identity that's been kind of. It depends what you mean by a club, doesn't it? And the supporters are the same, aren't they? I mean, I imagine they've got a, a lot more supporters around the world now, but the the core support, the the, the ones that, that 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 feel aggrieved when when you constantly point out the you know the Abu Dhabi links, those guys feel as if as if they're due a bit of success after after everything they they went through, slipping down that that way, and and having Manchester United on their their doorstep as well. But but you're right. I mean, look. If if you if it was a complete neutral, you know, someone who didn't know football, and you you presented them with Main Road in nineteen ninety seven ninety eight, and the Etihad now, then they're not they're chalk and cheese. Yeah, well, but you can say that for for any of the bigger clubs, which is you know, I suppose when we when we look at it, one of the driving factors behind the yeah, Super League, isn't yeah. it, that, that, that these these clubs are a different entity. Whether they should be treated as such is a completely different debate, which we might have a little bit later. We're very fond. Migs of talking about potential dynasties. We, we were talking about a Liverpool one, weren't we, not too long ago. <laughs> Assuming they give themselves another offensive option, you know, apart from obviously the, the, the false nine that they're playing at the moment, will that secure 
City's dominance. And I'm, and I'm thinking, I don't know what you guys are hearing, but I'm hearing that, that Harry Kane is is likely to join in the summer. If they can, you know, it's a big if, obviously, if they get the, the, the fee sorted. If they get someone like him, they will be really, really difficult to stop, won't they? Yeah. Uh, the, the, I actually, I would have been a bit more pessimistic about a potential one-club domination a few months ago, but I do think what Tuchel is doing with Chelsea changed that because Chelsea are one of the few few clubs that can uh, that have the means to compete. I, like I, think, I think I've referenced this on the podcast before, but when... Say when PSG bought Neymar in 2017, and like one of the strategies behind that was basically to short squeeze the football market because they knew if they drew up, drew up fees and wages, only a few clubs could compete. Two of them were the Manchester clubs, and one was Chelsea. I think Chelsea are capable of putting up to them, particularly if they get their own number nine. Then we've got two super squads under two super managers, and of course there are bigger, as we just referenced, there are, there are bigger questions about the. The direction of football, given the ownerships, given given the kind of wealth required to compete, and all the rest of it, but they are at least potential, possibly yeah, City's main rivals over the future. I mean, especially, especially if United can't really get their act together and have these ongoing problems under the Glazers. But and we could really be talking about two of the most complete squads we've seen if they both get strikers. And it's interesting because. It, I mean, I suppose the, it's interesting on Kane as well. I mean, I hadn't heard it was quite as advanced as you. I know City or United have been his two top choices, but of course it comes down to whether Levy will sell him. But it's in that Haaland had been expected to go to City. But there have been a few murmurs that even though the club really wanted Haaland, they are willing to do what Pep wants. And there were, there were a few indications that maybe Guardiola actually didn't think Haaland was as suited to his football as some people expected. And then maybe that opens the way for Chelsea to go in for Ireland. Yeah, well, it's a very expensive merry-go-round, but it's a merry-go-round nevertheless, isn't it? I suppose, you know, we, we talked about the case for Chelsea's defence, Dom. What about City's defence? What struck me about that game on Tuesday night was almost the NFL-style joy that some of the players showed at the destructive side of the game, you know, the high fives after the blocks. That told me, one, that there was... A real sense of, you know, collective commitment, but also, you know, the team spirit can't be bad when you when you've got people behaving like that. Absolutely, and and they were it was a full scale chest bump between John Stones and Zinchenko, wasn't there? After one particular, but I think Zinchenko blocked Neymar's shot. Yeah, Diaz's block subsequently, um, sort of volley. I can't remember who, who had the shot, but it was it was. I mean, that summed up City's performance, and it's really summed up their defensive showing. This season, since that that five goal concession to to Leicester at home back in the when would that be in September? It feels like about three seasons ago. <laughs> um, I mean, I think we I think we've we've all sort of been slightly taken aback by how solid City have become because probably because we obsess so much about how beautiful a lot of their attacking football has been throughout the Guardiola tenure at at, at City, but. I mean, look, Ruben Diaz has been this year's Virgil van Dijk. I mean, he has, that's what he's done. He has just inspired everybody around them and hoisted levels. And I think it's astonishing that we we talk about City's first choice back line and it probably doesn't have Aymeric Laporte in it. I mean, Laporte was, was the main man. He was the man that was being compared to van Dijk two years ago, a year ago. He probably doesn't get in now ahead of Stones, who's reborn hopefully hopefully also for the euros in the summer but uh, and ruben diaz and I, I just that was the the overriding theme from from tuesday night's victory over psg because to to keep even even though psg were without mbappe to restrict them to an evening without a single shot on target is absolutely astonishing i mean given Given, remember how dominant they were in the first leg, or the first half of the first leg. I mean, they just, they just looked as if they could run through City there. But, but really, from from half time in at, at Parc de Prince, they, they've City have have completely rallied and turned that tie around and and ended up winning comfortably, comfortably, and reducing really PSG to you know to in their frustration, they were just left to kick them. That was the only thing they had left. Speaking of, of John Stones, rather like Kyle Walker written off pretty regularly, but likely to be key elements in the England squad, if not the team in the Euros. And speaking of, of that, 
Migs, should Gareth Southgate build his team around Phil Foden? Uh, that was something I was exactly thinking during the second leg. Uh, it's amazing how quickly these things evolve. I suppose it's, it's a testament to uh, Foden's evolution over the last few months. It just, I mean, we know, we know how good he is, but even it's the degree of responsibility he's taking and how, and it, it's, it's always what happens when when these players move on to a, to the next level in that way. It's as if all the, diff- all the different talents they have, they bring them together and start really making use of them, really applying them. And I said, well, I actually, just when I, said his, when I said his name there, I almost said Iniesta, because it, <laughs> it was something, it, it is something you see when you watch phone, especially the way he kind of, the way he snakes through defences, those little angled passes he makes, and then quite, what, quite a ferocious shot, although he scores a lot more than Iniesta. And, I mean, even even within his own team, you don't even look at England yet. But considering Sterling was what he was probably about a year and a half ago was maybe England's main player, the primary playmaker. Foden now looks on a different level, and as if you should be building a team around him rather than Sterling. And I think there's an argument he's he's suddenly become maybe all right. There's still Harry Kane and all of his goals, to be fair. But Foden is kind of rising to that level, and. Certainly, out of the many, many attacking midfielders England have, he and even allowing for how brilliant Mount has been, it just feels Bowden as the pick and the one to really kind of to, to build around. Yeah, I suppose just final point on the on on the final Dom practicalities in a pandemic. You know, you've got two English clubs in a final, uh, fans permitted to travel to Istanbul. Would it be better in the current climate? And I know there will be connotations of English arrogance and domination yet again, but to have this final between City and Chelsea at Wembley or an English ground and maybe allowing Istanbul to have next season's competition with what one prays will be a full capacity crowd. As I say, practicalities. Do you think it will be moved and if so, should it? Look, I don't think it will be moved. Uh, I think that the, the Ataturk has, has been preparing for this, despite the fact that Turkey's still in lockdown, I believe. It's due to come out, I think, in the middle of the month. They would have had last year's final. Is that that, that was the original plan, yeah. wasn't it? So they've, they've basically been planning for this for a while. You're using far too much logic there, Mike. I'm afraid <laughs> that's that's the problem. I mean, it's a mo- momentary you, lapse. Don't worry. <laughs> I mean, UEFA. Forget the pandemic for a second. UEFA still staged Chelsea versus Arsenal in Baku in the Europa League final back in 2019. So it's it's you know I think that the commitment has been made to to Turkey in the same way that it was made to Azerbaijan. Now, the the pandemic, yeah, these are exceptional times. I suppose another spike or another rise in number of coronavirus cases in in Turkey might might change things. If, if, for example, the the game suddenly couldn't be played with supporters in the ground, but... But that's a lot. There are a lot of ifs there, and time is ticking along. I know we think we've got we've got four weeks or three, over three weeks now to until the final. But the, the reality is that the logistics of these things take a long time to get sorted out. And I would find I, I would suspect that it will be unlikely. And and yeah, you know, with the prospect of you got prospect of two major European finals featuring English clubs now potentially at the time of recording. So. It'll be another argument that we'll have presumably around the Europa League as well if that comes to pass. Um, but I, I just can't see UEFA changing. To be yeah, honest. I think yeah. Before we look at UEFA's role, I, I just want to obviously put on record that actually Chelsea are the first club to to reach the men and women's Champions League finals in the same season, and and Emma Hayes's team will win the WSL if they beat Reading on Sunday. I'm definitely going to come back to that and and give it the the time it deserves, you know, very possibly on Monday. But looking at UEFA, and I suppose we've got to get onto the politics of it eventually, Migs, they've apparently spent the last 10 days or so talking to the clubs, the 12 clubs, essentially plea bargaining probably. Looks like they've reached some sort of understanding with the English clubs and Atletico, which is uh, Gab Marcotti's reporting, where are we with UEFA Super League 
And almost when we're talking about this Champions League final between City and Chelsea, we're looking at two Super League clubs and it's not so much talking about the power of the Premier League, it's it's talking about the putative power of the Super League, isn't it? It's going to come back. Uh, I, I mean, my one hope in that regard would be that I do think legislation and regulation we put in place to prevent the Super League. And of course, that does have all sorts of knock-on effects because if there's no threat of a Super League, it means actually UEFA and a lot of the English football authorities or a lot of the other national authorities are actually freer to come up with better and fairer legislation for football because the big clubs don't have the same nuclear weapon hanging over everyone else. Now, in the in the sense of this um, punishment for potentially joining the Super League, that's almost that feels like this two year ban is almost UEFA's nuclear weapon. It's almost like you kill it. Okay, the English clubs have are, have, have have left, and they say Atletico have moved on, but there are still those those just like Madrid, Juventus really hanging on to the end of it that won't give it up and it does feel like UEFA threatening this two-year ban and basically just like to, to, to ultimately force the situation to an end and then they can start I suppose really dealing with the fallout but, but that's also why the, the this choice of final is quite interesting in itself and it's a, it's obviously for so many reasons beyond football it's unfortunate it comes in a pandemic but there's also I mean and the, the pandemic does offer a really, really strong logistical movement or logistical reason for moving it to England or somewhere closer. But it's because of the Super League, it's also somewhat complicated as well. Because how would it look if just after six of England's major clubs have tried to break away to a Super League, where we potentially have a situation where four of them, for the second time in three years, dominate both Europa League finals. And as Dom says, there will there will be inevitably the arguments to move from Gdansk somewhere in England as well. It's say there are these pushes to have both finals in England, even in a pandemic. It looks very Anglo-centric, and also it kind of feeds into this idea that I mean the, the game isn't just for England or the big clubs. It's it's a European-wide game or a global game, and that, that is even if there are fair questions over when and how and where. UEFA award certain certain state certain hosting rights. The whole logic of moving get these flagship games around is to kind of encourage that spirit that it's Europe's game and everyone because this isn't just for the fans of the clubs involved who don't know until relate. It's also the fans of the uh, 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 of the countries that host these games. Mm. Uh, so, like, I mean, like, I can see it from both sides in that regard. Uh, now, of course, the other side of this is yeah, the Istanbul numbers, whatever about Gdansk are really high right now, that could yet dictate things. How do you see the bigger picture unfolding, Dom? I'm thinking specifically in terms of the fallout from the protest which led to the postponement at Old Trafford. Do you think the backlash against you know the so-called big six owners and their clubs will grow? And if so, do you think the Premier League have the stomach for a fight against them? Blimey. I think it's probably club-specific on the six. I mean, the, the United protests, it's it's almost, it's, it's it's opened old wounds, old festering wounds, wounds that never never healed at all, um, the, the, the Super League proposals. And, and I, I suspect that we'll see all of United's fixtures over the remainder of this season marked by protests. I'd be very surprised if that didn't happen. Certainly the biggest games that United play because the the strength of feeling, the anti-glazer feeling, is is so deep rooted, and 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 this is almost the Super League proposal has has sort of reminded maybe some of the some of the United support that had had sort of grown accustomed to the way things were that actually this this isn't how we should be running our football club. This isn't how our football club should be owned, and and. And yeah, we are actually quite a radical support, and we will we we will make a stand against this. And I, I think that will continue. It, it's it's different when you go to a Chelsea or to a Manchester City because there isn't that same deep seated resentment of the ownership. They 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 were very angry that that the Super League proposals were were put forward, but you know where you might get. 
you know, some Chelsea supporters who who might want a head to roll, such as say a Bruce Buck. No one is saying Roman Abramovich should should get out of our club. I mean, that's just not how they're thinking. I mean, it's it's and the same with City and and the uh, Abu Dhabi United um, ownership structure. Then you go to Arsenal, and yeah, obviously there's been there's been a groundswell of of anti Stan Kroenke feeling for a long time. So this is just again reawaken that. The one that really intrigues me is Liverpool because because Liverpool's ownership keep making the same mistakes. They keep taking their fans for granted. That they certainly the the local fans, the the, the guys who are going into to Anfield, whether that be on on ticket prices or, or, or Super League or, or whatever, and and yet because they have they have instigated a level of of um, a great level of success at the club with a Champions League and a and a Premier League title. I think that puts that may put Liverpool's supporters in a with a bit of dilemma. Really, it has, how, how they how they progress on this, and I know Spirit of Shankly and, and those guys will will absolutely have found the the plans, Super League plans, abhorrent, and they they've made that very clear. And it will take a while to forgive and forget, but there's not real much evidence there when it comes to Fenway that that they are learning from their mistakes because they keep making them again. Um, in terms of the local support, so where does that leave Liverpool? It's it's the nature of the beast, isn't it, Don? Because if you think about it, <clears throat> you're correct to say that um, you know, Fenway will use you know the the Shankly legacy, for want of a better phrase, uh, to their own ends, their own commercial ends, because it it, it it develops the brand or certainly gives it texture and resonance. The Glazers are as tone deaf as ever, aren't they, Migs? They're talking about turning United into a, a £7 billion business. I thought it was a really revealing analysis on, on Twitter from uh, Swiss Ramble, uh, you know, great analyst. You know, He's saying their ownership has cost the club £1.1 billion and it leaves them still half a billion in debt. Isn't the problem... The identity of the owners, and you know, I know this is a statement of the obvious after what we've been through over the last couple of weeks. But you know, I look at Arsenal's situation. Daniel Ek, you know, he's there's a there's an offer in inverted commas for the club, which to me looks like a superficial PR stunt. Isn't that the essence of the problem? That he is, he might be a bit more hip, but he's certainly another ruthless billionaire who's. Really, he will need if he buys the club to to quotes sweat the brand like anyone else. It's the people. But this is precisely why. I mean, this wider spirit for reform, fan-led government reviews, and to look at the issues in football. The absolute key should be ownership. It might be too late for other clubs like United, but it's not for everyone else. And and I think there's. I mean, and in fact, the, the, the city actually example and the anger. From because it was the first time they've been angry at this ownership, the the anger at fans or the anger from fans at, at the Super League idea almost articulates this better than the clubs where there have been, you know, there's been there's been there's been longer form aggression because ultimately a, a real problem here is that if if these clubs aren't community assets or protecting that way or at best or sorry in an ideal situation fan owned, it means that no matter what. They're ultimately at the whim of whatever the owners decide, and in most cases, as you as you mentioned, with pretty much every everyone, and it applies in different ways from the Glazers to FSG to Abu Dhabi to, to Roman Abramovich. The, the primary goal isn't just winning, playing, and winning football matches as representations of the local community, and that's really that should be the absolute first and last objective of any club. And if they were fan-owned clubs. Yeah, where where that was properly regulated, that would be the case. But uh, as it, as it is, there's all sorts of. I mean, I suppose Abramovich wants social capital out of it. It's his plaything. Abu Dhabi have political capital or want political capital out of it. And there's been the whole sports the sports watching arguments for for FSG United and Arsenal. Or sorry, for the Glazers, FSG and the Cronkers. It's been about perpetual financial growth. And ultimately, there'll always be a point when these objectives are at odds with what a football club is supposed to be. And the only way you actually address this is if you put in proper regulations for ownership and if they they return as community assets. Now, 
the size, one of the problems is these clubs are now so financially big and such huge multinationals that it's difficult to write that back in. But it's some, but for pretty much every other club, it's something that should be looked at as we assess the way the land lies in football and, and, and amid this post-Super League, post-Super League spirit. Yeah. Chelsea, Dom, are offering three supporter advisors attendance at board meetings from July the 1st. No voting rights, four meetings a year. They can give £2,500 each to a charity of their choice, which is a great gesture. Is that a significant step forward or is it just, to be honest, tokenism? It's very cynical of you, mate. Uh, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm logical and cynical. You can you can match the two, can't you? <laughs> yeah, and probably this is a, this is a case in point. I mean, look, it's. I think it will offer. I hope it will offer a bit more transparency on what happens in those board meetings. I, I suspect that that the the supporters, the three supporter advisors, will get badgered by their fellow fans to find out exactly what goes on and. The outside world will discover more about about those board meetings, but look, it's it's not it's not fifty one percent ownership, is it? It's not it's not the German model or anything like that. It's it's just a step on the on the road towards something slightly better. I'm glad they've done it. I mean, I do find it amazing that the Chelsea supporters trust hasn't been involved in the face to face fans forum meetings that the that the the club have had in recent times which has been a source of frustration, I think, certainly for the trust members. But, you know, Chelsea have held those fans forums fairly regularly and and they have been, you know, the guys that go to them, you know, are reassured with the policy, although, you know, they weren't weren't aware, as far as I know, that that Chelsea were considering going off to join a Super League. So, and and would that even be discussed at at a board meeting? I don't know. I mean, it's so secretive. It's, we're talking right, right at the, the the top of the level, being discussed by owners and their lawyers, as opposed to even the the boards on the ground. So, so yeah, you're right. It is right to have a certain cynicism about it all, but you know, it's better to have fans sitting in and listening to what's being said than not. Yeah, to be fair, and I agree with that. Um, and and also to be fair, they've introduced a social media policy. Maybe you know. Horses and stables and bolting does come to mind on that. But I suppose let's look at the broader picture of that social media boycott, Migs. Do you think it was well-intentioned? I think we all did it for the right reasons, but pretty minimal effect since it elicited zero response from social media companies. And it's almost this week business as usual. You know, the first, literally the first tweet I read was Tony Evans, who's a, brilliant journalist and a good man being abused yeah what more can we do to apply pressure i know bt have got the the, the draw the line campaign which is, is going to be sustained but i found it really dispiriting to be honest uh, i have to say i mean the quick reversion to normal was always my res- or one of my reservations with this don't get me wrong i, I think it was well worth trying something and uh, also to see how, I mean, also kind of test the water in terms of how you battle this this problem going forward. A, a, a quibble I always had was essentially the ostentatious, self-congratulatory tone of a lot of it. And there was, I mean, as, as, as someone involved in football put it to me, I mean, there's almost a sense that like they, some, some people want to show the players they're doing something, but they're all just patting themselves on the back and nothing will change. Uh, I actually, while I... Agree. Well, I, well, I went along with the media boycott, and mostly did it myself. By one break when I attempted to schedule a tweet. Um, <laughs> That's down to IT incompetence, nothing else. <laughs> exactly. Well, um, I, I actually, I, I'm not, I'm not sure media should have gone along with it, given that our job is to communicate, and Twitter is where, whether you like it or not, is where news happens. And a problem was that was revealed when a massive news story broke. In terms of the um, in, 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 with, with the Old Trafford protest, and suddenly you had this vacuum of info or unverifiable info going everywhere, and and Twitter actually, you know, whether we like it or not, is it can be a good corrector of that, even if it, even it, it is as much a spreader of disinfo. But so it, it is hard. To, I mean, again, I suppose it's it's, it's, it's a double layered problem. There's the fact that the social media companies aren't 
sufficiently tackling abuse in the platform. And the other side is the fact that that abuse comes as part of a wider context. And the problem that before the pandemic, incidents of racial abuse in stadiums was growing. So it does point that it's, it's, it's obviously a lot bigger than the social media companies, but then the social media companies could be doing much more to tackle it. It, it, it does feel clubs potentially have to get stronger. Uh, and and it's, it's quite strange. It almost leaves us a bit more of a deadlock after it. I mean, uh, but yeah, and again, I don't deny and I, that it was worth trying this. Yeah, I, I could only imagine the existential angst of a few of the chaps when that story broke and they were unable to push the button on Twitter. <laughs> that was, a, that was a, a moment, let's put it like that. I suppose also the broader issue, I just want to end actually on one particular coach, probably won't surprise you who it's going to be, who plays the media brilliantly, Jose Mourinho. The great survivor, he's joined Roma after 15 days of gardening leave, where he probably didn't even prune the roses. Why? Why did he dash back in, Dom? Well, <laughs> he's got the bug. He will, He still considers himself a football man. That, I was very, very, very surprised when uh, he was announced by a sports radio station last week as as their sort of big signing um and a couple of newspapers had him as a columnist i i i wrongly assumed at the time that that was going to be a long term thing with them but then there's nothing long term with jose is it um <laughs> second and a, two and a half years his columns just deteriorate beyond, beyond all recognition um <laughs> but but like it's i'd like to know whether they got the story actually um as a, as a complete aside as a, journalistically what what baffles me is that when, why Roma see this as a good idea. I I, I get to a certain extent that, that 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 Italy is probably the only country, the only major football league left that 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 he, where he he probably holds the old mystique, the legacy of his time at, at Inter, where he won successive Serie A titles and the Champions League. But we're talking twelve years back, isn't that? Two thousand and nine was the was the Champions League success. I guess maybe it will be it will suit the style of football that he wants. But but the reality of it is, Jose Mourinho is a checkbook manager. He's a he's a manager that needs to to bring in his own players to get it to work. I don't think he is the training ground manager that he he thinks he is anymore. Are Roma going to be in a position, not in the Champions League next season, are they going to be in a position to throw limitless amounts of money at it so that they suddenly come into contention next year and can compete with with what will presumably be a resurgent Juve um, because Inter's financial situation is so grim? I, I, I just don't see it. And so I, for that reason alone, I don't see the logic in the appointment other than it's very high profile and it will gain an awful lot of traction and the media will be obsessed with it and 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 it allows Jose a route back into top level football. But for me it, it just looks like another disaster waiting to happen, I'm afraid. And and, and that's coming from somebody who actually likes Jose Mourinho and, and and has been fascinated by watching his his teams develop, flourish, fail, unravel. Just, just on, on what Dom was saying there, I and I felt this when he, especially when he went back to Spurs, and uh, sometimes during United, I wonder has Jose got into that? What happened to Wenger really? And it happened to Wenger, it ended up being the case of Wenger for about seven to eight years, where the game obviously evolved, and we've already spoken about that with Guardiola and Tuchel. But managers, especially managers, where of that prestige that were once so so admired and so celebrated. And where their approaches were, were seen as cutting edge, it's almost like that pride cuts in, and they they can't fully accept that the way they used to do things is no longer cutting edge. So they get into that cycle of they keep trying to prove, no, I, I can do it my way, and I'll show everyone. But then with every job, it just gets kind of almost worse and worse for really. you. And I, that, that was such a classic case of Wenger. When Wenger almost got so stubborn about it towards the end, and Arsenal began to recede. And like you can see in, in terms of jo, in Jose's jobs now, where he basically he goes from Chelsea to United, United obviously kind of you know, arguably a bigger club than Chelsea, but in terms of success there as well. 
Chelsea, United, Tottenham, then Roma, where the status of jobs has certainly slipped in profile from United to Roma, but also the return of trophies when Chelsea to Spurs has dropped. Uh, in the same sort of pattern that Wenger was in. Yeah, well, we began the show by considering the merits of two coaches at the peak of their powers. Pep Guardiola and Thomas Tuchel are operating at an entirely different level to Jose Mourinho. It remains to be seen whether him joining Roma was typical opportunism or an act of desperation. In truth, it was probably a little bit of both. The psychodramas will continue, but in truth, again, he's yesterday's man. What do you think? Please let me know. But in the meantime, thanks to Dom and Miggs for their insight and to you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.